Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Can I firstly say a huge thank you to everyone who came out and saw my shows, my very short notice shows that I did at the Canberra Theatre Centre. I did uh, Will Legal on the Friday night. That was the first time I'd done that show in 18 months. And then on the Saturday night, I did my improvised show, What You Talking About, Will? Uh, first time doing that show in a big theatre like the Playhouse at the Canberra Theatre. And so thank you to everybody who came out on both the Friday night and the Saturday night. I enjoyed uh, both of those shows a lot and I know there was a lot of people who bought tickets to both and came along. So thank you for your incredible support coming out to see live comedy. And speaking of live comedy, this is the new world that we live in. Uh, Adelaide, I did not think I was coming to the Adelaide Fringe this year. Uh, when the venues were assigned, I was at a stage where I still didn't think I would be doing stand-up in the first half of the year. And so I was looking on jealously at all the friends in Adelaide doing shows, having such a good time. Uh, next week would have been a year uh, since my final live gig in front of people, which was, of course, at the Adelaide Fringe Festival, at the final night of the Adelaide Fringe Festival last year. Well... Uh, my uh, poor mate Tom Ballard has been caught in New Zealand quarantine and that means that he cannot make it to his shows that he was going to do at the Adelaide Fringe Festival and of course in that situation they were looking for somebody to fill in at short notice who hopefully could still fill up those shows so uh, I was asked if I would come along and do it and I have agreed to do it so five shows only I am going to be doing at the Adelaide Fringe Festival it will be from uh, the Wednesday to the Sunday, not this week, but the week after. And you can find all the details, of course, at comedy.com.au if you want to go and find uh, all the links to all my shows. But basically what I'm going to do in Adelaide is four shows that were legal because uh, in 2018 when I started doing were legal, Adelaide saw a version of it. It's always been a sort of, you know, 70, 80, 90-minute show sometimes, but at very least to tell the whole show, it's a 70-minute show. And in Adelaide, I only had 60 minutes and I was still running in the show. So there was no one night of the Adelaide Fringe that got to see the entire story, um, particularly the entire story with all the good jokes in it um, that first year when I was running it in in Adelaide. So I decided I would bring that show back for four nights only, which means that uh, if you saw it back then and you want to see what it turned into or if you want to come and see the whole story or if you didn't see it back then and you want to come and see it now, you can come and see that. That will be Wednesday to Saturday. But if you have seen the show already and uh, you want to see something new, I decided that on the Sunday night, I will do my improvised stand-up show, What You Talking About, Will. So that is uh, what I'm doing. Five shows in total. If you don't want to come and see Will Legal, if you've seen Will Legal, then uh, come along on the Sunday night. But I will say, because that is obviously the new show, the improvised show, that one uh, probably will sell out really quickly. So if you want to get in for that one, uh, get your tickets really quickly. And then, of course, this is all in a week and a half. So I guess what I'm really saying is getting quickly in general. Uh, Saturday night, March the 13th, I will be at the Brunswick Picture House for my final What You Talking About Will show at the Brunswick Picture House. There are still a few tickets available for that if you want to come along. And then, yes, that's Saturday night. Then on the Wednesday, I'm in Adelaide doing Will Legal through to the next Saturday night. And then on the Sunday, What You Talking About Will. After that, from April the 6th, for two weeks only. This is your final chance, Melbourne, to come and see Will Legal. So I'm doing it at the Arts Centre. I've made a few changes. If you've seen it before, I recommend coming to see it again. Bring along a friend who hasn't seen it to see the show. But, uh, of course, if you've never seen the show and you would like to see it, this is your opportunity to do so. So please book some tickets to the Melbourne Arts Centre to see my show, Will Legal. 
Okay, they're my plugs. Uh, Josh Earl is also doing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and uh, he's doing his solo stand-up shows. Of course, his brilliant podcast, Don't You Know Who I Am, which we talk about a lot on this episode. I love Josh. He's a, a friend of mine, somebody I don't get to spend enough time with, but always enjoy every bit of time that I do spend with Josh. And he's very generous on this episode. I am a subscriber to Josh's Patreon and often he'll write these short stories on his Patreon that are really only for his Patreon listeners and they can be quite intimate stories about his life. Well, you get to hear a few of those on this show here today, uh, including one in particular, which is a pretty powerful story and it does include, I like to put a warning in these things now when I remember, I've got to get a little bit better at it, but uh, there is discussion of suicide um, in this. So if you happen to be struggling yourself, of course, Lifeline, uh, Beyond Blue, um, make sure that you reach out to somebody if you possibly can, or if you're worried about somebody in your life, make sure that you contact those places and get some advice on what it is that you could be doing. But uh, this is an incredible episode with Josh. Um, if you like this episode, if you would like to support this show, then the best way to do that is go to patreon.com slash philosophy. You can join for as little as a US dollar per month. And uh, if you're new to the show, it, it, it's, it's actually quite amusing now because I set this about halfway through last year. We were, you know, the Patreon was going up and I thought, you know what, if we get to 5000 a month, we can afford to do two episodes a week. One brand new episode early in the week and then a catch up episode later in the week. And since then, the contribution amount has literally just hovered somewhere between 4700 and 4950 At the moment, we're around 4780 uh, per month. We might try to sneak up an extra bonus episode this month just for being close enough, but it is a real tease. If you want to contribute to the show, if you think that it's a worthwhile show, then the best way you can do that is to go to patreon.com slash philosophy. If you can't afford to contribute in that way, please rate the show, review the show, give us five stars on iTunes. I know all podcasts ask for that, but the reason they all ask for it is that's how algorithms work. And the more that you engage with this show, the more that it can get out to people. So even if it's as simple as like sending out a tweet or an Instagram message, contacting the person um, that you uh, heard on the episode and telling them that you enjoyed it, all those things are really important. So you can be an ambassador for this show. Um, this is an independent media show. I don't have a big corporation behind me. There is no company behind me. And we're in a market where a lot of the shows do have those things behind them. Um, we're just a tiny little team trying to work it all out ourselves in between other things so if you like this show and you'd like to support this show patreon.com slash philosophy is the place to go and of course tofop.com is where you can find all our podcasts tofop it's been going for nearly 11 years now fofop my spin-off to tofop uh, which is back and lots of good new episodes of fofop our afl adjacent football podcast two guys one cup an afl podcast uh, charlie has been doing a summer series of talking to people about the clubs they support and why they support those clubs and josh earl if you like this episode you can go and listen to josh talking to charlie all about the north melbourne football club on an episode of that and of course the regular season of two guys one cup um, has to be back really soon. <laughs> I don't know when we're going to fucking fit it out, but the footy season's the footy season's about to start. So Charlie and I have to get our ass in gear and you know complete last season's episodes first, and then get into this season. So if you want to hear a uh, football podcast that rarely talks about football, Two Guys One Cup might be the show for you. All right, thanks very much for listening to every episode of Willosophy, but today's episode in particular, and I hope you enjoy this chat with Joshua. <laughs>
Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask the guests who they are. So who are you, sir? Hello, my name is Josh Earl. I'm a comedian, podcaster, or if you're my Uber driver, I'm, I'm a writer. There you go. <laughs> Let's start there. Because this is an interesting uh, insight into psychology, I think, which is that <laughs> <laughs> not wanting to tell your Uber driver that you're a comedian. Why is it that you would not want to lead with comedian with an Uber driver? Because then you have to explain, oh, you have to one, say a joke, mm-hmm. and then you, it doesn't work. And, and you try, then you have to explain, oh, it doesn't work like that. And then you <laughs> sound like a dick, and then are not a very good comic. <laughs> Like a good comic you would think would have a couple of, you know, street jokes off the in their back pocket to go, right, here we go. Bang, bang, bang. I just, yeah, I just don't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry any Uber drivers who's ever driven me. I'm a writer. Uh, now, do you identify as a writer in other areas of your life or is writer only coming first in Ubers? Uh, no, if I'm at a, uh, like a, a barbecue with a bunch of people I don't really know, I'll, and they say, oh, what do you do? I'll say I'm a writer. Which is not not untrue. I do write for the project. So, and then there's plenty to talk about off that. And then I can talk about, and they are like, oh, what, what's Carrie really like? What's Willie what really like? And then they're like, oh, so you're telling me that Peter Helly doesn't write his own jokes? Yes, he does. Yeah. I just write other stuff there as well. Like, yeah. Okay, so it's a better area to provide conversation that people might actually yeah. engage in. I get what you're saying. Yeah. What about if you're travelling internationally? When you're asked for your occupation when you're travelling. So this is not going to be a situation where I, somebody's going to like get in a conversation with you. This is literally just you saying yeah. what you do for a profession. What do you write? Uh, I put entertainer. Um. <laughs> if I am if I am travelling, I normally have my guitar. So it's it's kind of like entertainers. You don't have to say comedian, don't have to say musician. Yeah. I, I do love it. What do you identify most as though yourself? Like if I just, if you're talking, you know, genu- genuinely, which of those things, like, as you mentioned podcaster, you know, yeah. you mentioned, you know, the fact that you do write. And of course you write, you know, your songs, you write your shows, like, you know, anything that yeah. you perform on stage, generally you're writing as well. So writer, of course, covers it all off. But do you identify yeah. first and foremost as a comedian? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say comedian. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the goal is to just go, right, I can, you know, just do comedy and everything I'm writing is hopefully going to be for that. That's the dream. There's an amazing thing about comedy that I've noticed, which is that so anyone who's done one open mic considers themselves to be a comedian and will tell everybody in the world that they're a comedian. Once you've done yeah. enough comedy, you stop telling people yeah. what you do. <laughs> it's that great thing when, when you first start, all your friends and sometimes family will come along. And then, you know, I'm 16, 17 years in now. I don't want my friends to come along. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm fine. I don't need you to see me. It's, it's, it's better if you don't, if I'm honest. We can have better conversations after the show. I'll meet you after the show. It'll be way more fun. Like, yeah, you go see a different show. I'll do my show. We'll meet up after. So what is that about? Because I have uh, a whole range of different thoughts on this. Like, firstly, what I love is there are members of my family who were so supportive. And I'm not talking core family. Yeah. I'm talking extended family now. First year that I did the comedy festival, there was cousins coming, aunties, uncles, none of whom have ever returned. Like, <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. Based on how bad it was that first year, I get why they yeah. might have had, say, five or six years off. But after a yeah. while, wouldn't you have thought, I reckon he's got better at this. I might come back for a see a show. I remember the first time my parents came along, my dad didn't watch me, just watched everyone reacting around me or around him and going afterwards going, yeah, people people around me were laughing, Josh. It was good. I'm like, yeah, but 
were you laughing? Were you laughing, Dad? Oh, yeah, 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 no, it was fine. But I've heard all these stories before. <laughs> and so that was early on. And then I remember they, they came and saw me during the comedy festival one year and it was like a great show to come see. It was like full, it was at Swiss House. So it was like, you know, 180 seats. So it was, you know, felt like a proper show. And at the end, because the show was, you know, I mentioned them in the show. And I, at the end I said, oh, by the way, special night tonight. My actual parents are here. And my dad stood up to take a bow. And I'm like, that so encapsulates him. He's like, yes, this is my time to shine. I, I, I've supported this for, for all my life. And it was like, yeah. And, I was, and mum was like horrified. She was like, no, don't, don't talk about me. I don't, I don't want you to know. I don't want people to know I'm here. Okay. So do they come and see you? Every year, because one of the things that I absolutely love no. is that my, I think my sister is probably the only person who's seen all 25 or 26 shows that I've done at the comedy festival. Um, yeah. My mum would go close. I reckon she's only missed one or two over the years. My dad has been probably dragged along to 80, 85% yeah. of those uh, over the years. So that's your sort of core family. My brother comes most of the time, not all of the time. Yeah. What's your family's relationship to your work? Uh, well, because none of them live in Melbourne. So they they came across that one time and saw it. And then there was another time, like three years before that, and they came over because it was the Anzac Day. They wanted to watch the footy. So they want – my dad goes for Carlton, mum goes for Essendon. So we're like, all right, we'll go for – we'll go and watch the footy together. And I that year was doing a show at Duckboard House, which would have – because it was an RSL, would have Anzac Day off. And so it was great. And, but that night there was a show called Laugh-A-Palooza, which was like all the, all the musical comedians, which – that time was very popular and so they came and watched that and they really liked that i mean that was a pretty easy sell it's like hey uh tim mentions on tripods on eddie perfect's on i'm on and sister she so it was like oh yeah this is a very easy sell to go yeah we've i, I was only doing eight minutes so it was like perfect they like that <laughs> yeah that's right we will come and see you every year if tim mention and tripod are also mm. on <laughs> yeah Easy sell. Uh, okay, so Friends is, uh, yes, this was the one that you mentioned that I'm much more interested in because, you know, family, there is some sort of requirement there. But Friends and whether your friends, you know, you want them to come and see the show, whether they want to come and see the show, I think is a really interesting area. And often over the years, my friends have got a little insulted when I suggest that they probably don't want to come to the show. I'm like, you know what, it's not really for you. You're going to see a yeah. version of me that you're going to feel a bit weird about because it's not what I'm like when we're friends together. You're going to see me up on stage, particularly if my partner is there in the room. I find it completely difficult because I know the whole time she's just sitting there going, that's not what he's like at all. Don't any of you believe this is what he's like all the time because he's yeah. not. I'm the same. Friends kind of, they've been seeing me enough that, you know, okay, my onstage persona is kind of like just a more confident offstage persona. Uh, whereas it's hard now because I've got – two kids and they're both at school. And so there's a lot of our friendships now are like other parents in the playground. And so they will come and see me. And quite often I'll get when they find out I do comedy, like, Oh, I just, I can't, I can't imagine it. I just can't see you doing comedy. And then they see it and they go, Oh wow. That's actually, you know, a lot better than they thought. I could tell they <laughs> thought it was better than they were expecting. And so, but then you've got to do that whole kind of, all right, can we not talk about it though in the school year? I don't need to talk about, I don't need those two worlds colliding. Like I'm I'm parent Josh here, not comedian Josh. It's an interesting differentiation because there are some people who probably think that, and I guess this is where we started, is the idea of, you know, how much of your life identifying as being a comedian 
actually affects the rest of your life. And I think, I, I don't know if you were the same as me, but early on, I my entire identity revolved around yeah. the idea that I was a comedian. Whereas obviously the longer I've, I've done it, the more that I can go, well, this is my job and there is a me that is separate to the comedian me. Talk to me about the, the yeah. various Josh Earls and how they all fit together. Well, I think that thing of, because I moved states to do comedy. And so I had, I'd done like 15 gigs in Tassie before I was like, I'm going to move to Melbourne and try and do it there. And so I knew a few people. There are a lot of Tasmanians in uh, Melbourne. So I knew a few people, but then all my friendship groups were just comics. And so you just sit around talking comedy and hearing about what other comics have done and how, and like, you know, the first like three years, every kind of, I don't know, not every catch up, but it, it does seem like it's a lot of networking and I, I, I'm not good at that. And so it was that thing of going, oh, I'll kind of stand in the corner. I'll have my own little group. And I was lucky that uh, one of my best friends was also had just moved and was in, in comedy. So we could kind of be a little group together. And then, yeah, but it is that weird thing of like just the, the different brains because I have, you know, I was also working as, at, at a school. And so going there and I think teachers have a different personality as well. They're not themselves. They've got to be. Mr. Earl that day and it's the very and you're gonna be serious and I was very young I'd went from uni straight into on the other side of the desk really much and you had other teachers going oh you got to stop the kids from sitting on the desk I'm like it doesn't matter does it like they're listening like they're engaged does it matter if they sit on the desk and then I realized oh it does because they've got to sit on the chair that's that's what the rules are you sit on the chair and so trying to navigate that and then go out at night and do comedy and then also, you know, be a good friend and a good partner. Like you do have different brains. You go, all right, I've got to switch on this one now. And sometimes it gets a bit overwhelming. And sometimes, you know, for when you first start comedy, you can turn into a bit of an arsehole because you think comedy is the absolute most important thing in the world. And you can't believe that people don't understand that the comedy festival is coming out <laughs> and you can't do anything for a month before or that month. And... My wife's birthday is in April, so every year since I've known her, I've had, all right, well, I've got a show that night, but we'll do something like the next day during the day. Is that is that possible? And it's like, and she knows that I'm thinking about it as well. So she's very good now. She's like, not that she was never good, but it's that thing of like, I, I understand. Okay, you're in that headspace. Oh, we'll, we'll do something at another time and... Although I'm, I'm a lot better now as well, where I can kind of switch off and go, all right, we're, we're having some time where I'm not looking at my phone, not going to talk comedy, not going to do anything. Well, that's an interesting idea to me, which is that one of how good are you at being present in those situations? So whether it be a parenting situation, whether it be a partnership situation, whether it be just a non-work situation, how good are you at yeah. making sure that your mind isn't off thinking about something else that you're meant to be doing? I'm pretty good. I mean, unfortunately... With the podcast that I've, I do, it takes up a lot of my time. And so, and you're kind of relying on other people's schedules to try and fit it in, which I'm sure you know all too much about. And so sometimes, some weeks it's like, great, like we're all in sync. And other weeks it's like, hey, I can't do that pickup like I said I would because this person can only record here and I, I, I need to put it out on Thursday because in my head, that's just the day it's got to come out. <laughs> Even though I'm sure my listeners who are so lovely would go, 
hey, it's fine, Josh. Put it out Friday. We're fine. We can, we can no, go No, Josh. But Make it, a decision yeah, that exactly. will instead tear apart your family because we need this out on Thursday. Hey, your kid will get over being left at school for half hour. There's a playground. No, but it is that thing. Like, I, and I think like, I, I'm very punctual, which also helps though. So trying to go, all right, if everything's timetabled, I can do this. And it's when things are out of my control that I'm like, okay, I'm overthinking everything. And I think that's a thing of... I, I, my friend Stu, who didn't go to uni, was like everyone. Every friend of mine who went to uni overthinks everything now, and he's like, I just don't understand what happens at uni that makes you overthink every little thing. And I was like, Oh yeah, that's that's probably right. Yeah, I got to uni and I was like overthinking everything. Okay, so tell me, I I, I want to know about a bit a bit about this Josh Earl. Let's go. Let's do some background. Let's do some previously sure. on Josh Earl. You know, yeah. let's. Paint the picture of, you know, where you grew up, what that life was like um, before you, okay. you know, ended up going off to uni. Born in 81 um, in Burnie in Tasmania. So if you've never been to Burnie, it's an industrial town. It's like Newcastle. It's like it's got the port, which when I was nine years old, the uh, so it had a pulp mill factory. And so reflex paper used to be made in Burnie. And then in 89, 90, I think it was around then, it shut down. And the city went from uh, about, I think, 26,000 to about 15,000 in the space of a year or so. My parents didn't work there, so it didn't really affect us, but it did affect the town for many, many years. Didn't really know what it was. I, my parents working class. My mum worked in a bar. My dad uh, was worked in a kind of hardware adjacent. He sold nuts and bolts, like travelling salesmen selling nuts and bolts to big companies uh and i got two brothers and it does make a lot more sense that it was big companies but immediately when you said that i had just this yeah. image in my head of this guy who always just had pockets full of nuts and bolts who could yeah. just like you know what you need for that mate yeah you've Going got 25 door to door. right now i can fix this up right now uh the amount of times he would come home with just boxes of screws and that had these rubber washers and he'd go there you go boys put those on and we'd sit there <laughs> Watching TV, just putting on these rubber washers and he like, and that's like hours and hours of my life was spent doing that. Like watching the cricket, just doing that. That was our summer, like kind of thing. But uh, um, I, at 17, went off to uni, did performing arts. And that was on the proviso that my parents said, well, you can do that, but you've got to do teaching afterwards. Just so you've got, you've got something to fall back on. And so, uh, yeah, did teaching after that. Okay, so I, I like so let's yeah let's not rush through that, this little bit of it because I think this is really interesting. So you've got working class parents, you know, nuts and bolts salesmen. You know, mum works in a bar, and you yeah. say to them, "I want to do performing arts." Are they enthusiastic about the idea of you wanting to? Do, I mean, clearly, it wasn't a shock. Meant, it wasn't a shock. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I did drama all through. So I should also go back. So from zero to about four. Uh, not non-verbal, but could only be understood by a few people. Like my mum, my dad, my older brother really struggled with my speech. From five to 13 had speech therapy. And in that they were like, hey, doing speech and drama at school would be really good for him because he can, you know, learn to speak. Uh, and so my mum, they were really encouraging to do that. And my auntie had already done a, she was a drama teacher. So it was in the air. If it was like first first time ever first person in the family to go to uni probably would have been a bit different but uh i yeah all through high school the amount of 
shit plays my mum has watched. And she always says, it's like, every single one was just girls screaming, Josh. Every play in high school was just girls <laughs> screaming. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm pretty sure that was only the Crucible mum, but you know what? Like, we'll go with it. Um, and then got to uni. So uni was in Launceston. And I was 17 and I just chose the closest uni. I didn't really, I was far too young to make making those kind of decisions. Everyone around me seemed to be making these big decisions about, oh, I want to do engineering. I'm going to go to, you know, Brisbane and do that. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not even thinking like that. I'm just kind of going along with the flow. And so Launceston is two hours away from Burnie, but I didn't drive. So it was a day because I had to ca catch the bus, which was great because it was like far enough away that it was too hard for me to go home. And also, was, I mean, my parents come and visit me more in Melbourne than they ever did in Launceston. It was just that in Tassie, even though it's a small island, if you live there, it's a big island. You, you would never drive from Launceston to Hobart. That's crazy. And so it was it, at uni that I really kind of had that freedom and discovering a whole bunch of stuff like music and comedy and drugs and all that kind of stuff that's fun and what you do at uni. Okay, so here's what I love about this. I mean, re realistically, you've just told me a story, which is actually incredible. The fact that you were, you know, basically nonverbal, not entirely, but like, you know, in, yeah. in an operational sense until age four, you've yeah. gone into these, you know, speech programs. You've been encouraged to do drama and stuff so that, you know, it will help you encourage, you know, you know, being a confident speaker, being able to engage. You've literally gone from somebody who wasn't in a position to be able to speak very well to someone who pretty much just speaks for a living. I know. Like you, which is like in some ways is if you were doing a movie about something, that's like an incredible story, just that alone. Yeah. So my, my show on the Comedy Festival in 2019 was about this. So what I have is a practice of speech, which is quite common with a lot of uh, a lot of kids. And I, um, I have a whole bunch of things that I didn't realize I was doing. And then I worked with a speech pathologist later in life. And they're like, okay, so this is what you're, this is what I think you're doing. And it's like, so I quite often will get reviews say he, he talks very fast and that is because what I'm trying to do is I get on a roll and sometimes there's a blockage between what my brain is wanting me to say and what my mouth can actually do. And so if I get on this roll, it doesn't give my tongue enough time to think about the shapes it makes and kind of just tries to go with it. And so and I, there's also words I try to avoid like P-H-T-H, -H, those kind of sounds, F's, like if I can avoid it, I'll do my best to avoid it. And that is a constant thing of I've done that my entire life that I don't even think about it now. But when I work with my speech pathologist, it's like, you know, you're doing so much stuff in your head before it even gets out of your mouth, which sometimes makes you speak even quicker. It's incredible. This is really absolutely fascinating to me. So you end up at uh, university in performing arts. What was, did you have a sense of, what that would mean like did you at that point have a, a dream or ambition of what you were going to do in the performing arts no the one i did this is uni of tasmania and so i did i thought okay i'll be a drama teacher that's that was because that was the only kind of thing in the arts where i go oh there's a job at the end of that i remember seeing jim owen when i was in grade seven and going yeah i want to do that and then i remember the Comedy Festival Roadshow that you were in, in 99, came to town. And I remember I went and watched that with my girlfriend and I said to her, I want to be a comedian. 
And then that first semester of that course, they had one of the things was stand-up comedy. And it wasn't really stand-up. It was just go up on stage and talk about yourself or a story about you for three to five minutes. And it was really great because it was like so so easy for actors sometimes to get up there and portray a different character. But to be yourself, I think, was a really good thing to learn straight away. Like, And so... And it was also good for them to know who we are as students as well. And I did very well. This is the, be- the best mark I ever got for anything in that course was doing stand-up. And always then kind of pigeonholed into being the, the funny role or the bit of light entertainment. And it wasn't until f- like five years later that I did my first gig. After going, I want to do, I want to do this. And they go, but how? How do you do that? You just can't do that. That's... It's not a job that people can have, especially coming from Tasmania. I mean, it's it's not. And this is what's so amazing about it. I mean, it is now. That's the yeah. that's the interesting thing. Like, it doesn't matter where you are in Australia now. I, I was driving, you know, through Lismore the other night and uh, there was like an open mic there on that had 15 people on the lineup. And I'm just like, oh, isn't that amazing? You yeah. can live in like a country town like Lismore and there can be like an open mic night with 15 acts on it. And those people have a past way where they can, you know, access bigger gigs and competitions and yeah. all these sorts of things and they can actually see a definitive pathway towards comedy being a job. But, you know, 99 would have been that roadshow was the first ever roadshow. Yeah. Like, you know, that they did. That was the first time that Melbourne Comedy Festival took, you know, comedians around Australia to, you know, to yeah. such a huge part of the Australian comedy landscape now is you can live in pretty much any town in Australia and you'll get some of the best comedians in the world coming to your town to visit, to put on a show. It means if you're a kid sitting in that audience, you can go, Hey, I'm here in Grafton, but I'm seeing, you know, I am seeing Jim Owen. I am seeing Josh Earl. I am seeing, you know, whoever it is that's going to, you know, Hannah Gadsby, you know, did those tours. You know, you you see whoever the, you know, the current Hannah Gadsby is doing those tours. You're watching Geraldine Hickey or somebody going, oh my God, I've never heard of this person necessarily, but they're, you know, brilliant and genius. But yes, you are still of a generation just on that cusp, really. Yeah. Probably mostly because also you weren't in Melbourne or in Sydney where it still was very much running away to join the circus. Oh, it was that thing of, so this is 99, where there was the internet, but there really wasn't. Mm. Like there wasn't much to do on there. (laughs) It existed. Yeah. We had an email, but you wouldn't really, you'd check it once a week maybe. Like that was the thing. And the only thing I ever used the internet for was to find guitar tabs. That was the only thing I went on there for. I didn't get my news from it. I didn't like catch up with friends. It was like, that was it. And so to get it, and it was that's why TV back then was super important as well. And I remember, so this is, I didn't realize this until years later that kind of all, all the things I gravitated towards was stand up. That there was a TV show on when I was in year nine or year 10 called Something Hot Before Bed, which was mm-hmm. filmed at the ESPY. And it was just local Melbourne comics getting up there. And some were great. Some were absolute dog shit. But it was like, it, I, was, I loved all of it because it was like, this is, you know, something that I don't have. And I was probably at that right age for it where it was like 14, 15 is when you're kind of trying to figure out who you are and what you're into and trying to impress your friends with, hey, I saw this. Did you see this? And so that was, yeah, that was probably really, really another thing which was kind of, push me towards doing stand-up. 
Okay, interesting. Okay, so you end up doing stand-up for the first time. Can you remember what your first gig was like? I mean, again, sometimes yeah. on this podcast, I think we've got to some good juicy stuff already and there's plenty more to go and sometimes I'm sure that people get pissed off that I just want to hear everything about people's first stand-up gigs. But you know what? It's my show Yeah. and, you know, I get to ask whatever questions I want. So tell us about your first gig. So a guy, he's a, a cartoonist called Rick Sheshire. He's very good. He does. Uh, he's done your mind's uh, album cover at one point. He was living in Launceston and he started up a zine called Clunk, and he was doing a fundraiser for the zine. And I was part of this impro kind of group. It was so weird to explain it. So it was like an impro soap opera, and it was very popular. It was called BGN Seven Two Five O, and Seven Two Five O was Launceston's. And so it was a bunch of mates. Uh, Launceston postcode. So it was a bunch of mates from uh, my theatre degree days. And we'd first half of the show would be kind of not scripted, but we knew we knew the outline of where we'd go, and then we'd have a break and get the audience to yell out suggestions or write down suggestions of what should happen next. And we all played different characters, and my character uh, would play songs, and I'd have little funny songs that I'd play. And Rick was like, "Hey, do you wanna, I'm doing a stand-up night. Do you want to, to like I'm doing a fundraiser for my zine. Think of doing a stand-up night. Do you want to do you want to be on?" I went, "All right, cool." Then uh, a week later, so a week before the gig, my girlfriend of almost five years, we break up in a massive, big, everything implodes. Like I walk in on her with another guy. It's just just messy. And so I get up on stage and the first gig is talking about that because it was nonsense and everyone knew. So I was just (laughs) pretty much venting about that. I wasn't being mean to her. I was just saying, this is the story. This is what's happened. And the first kind of punchline was I was really into a band called The Sailors who were around the Melbourne scene and it was just grotty punk singing about very childish stuff. And so she she drove me up. She drove me from Devonport where she was living up to Launceston. I was listening to that song and then she drove, she drove me back down because I didn't have a licence, by the way. I'll go back. Okay, so my friend who was a courier drove me down to surprise her one morning. Oh, no. I had knocked on the door and I see she had one of those frosted glass doors and I saw a body run and then I saw her open it. And I was trying to be a nice guy and not go, what was that? And then she goes, hey, I'm out of milk. Do you want to run and get me some milk? Mm. And she lived right next to a service station. So I've never run so fast. I ran back and then came back inside and then she's like, hey, I've got, I've got something to tell you. Um, I won't say his name. He stayed over last night. I'm like, where? And she's like, um, uh, yeah. And anyway, then she, it all comes out. I'm stuck there because my mate's gone off on the rest of his job driving around Tasmania delivering to chemists. Yeah. And so I'm like, all right, can you drive me home? And so we drive an hour and a half <laughs> and she goes, all right, I'm going to go back. I'll come back up tomorrow. And so I'm sitting there. I didn't have a mobile phone at this stage. This is how, yeah. Anyway, so she comes up the next day and we have the big conversation and I'm just listening to music while, like, while she's talking. And she goes, I, I, it's over. It's, it's done. And when she said that, the song, I'll Punch You With The Fist Of My Cock, just started playing. <laughs> and so my first gig was just telling that story and then playing the chorus of that song. And I'm like, yeah, so I can't think of that song without thinking of her, which I'm not proud of, but that was my first gig. Um, 
But it was like looking back, it was one of the best things ever because it was like if I didn't, if we didn't break up, I wouldn't have done comedy. Like I would have just been hanging around Launceston doing small gigs, got a job as a teacher. She was a teacher, got a job as a teacher and that would have been my life. You would have been a very popular local entertainer. You would yep. have been that teacher who hosted things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the school, the school fate. I oh, will get Josh up on the mic. He loves it. That's yeah. that's what it would have been. He'll bring his guitar. We won't yeah. be able to stop him. It'll be yeah. fine. Josh yeah. loves it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do an auction. I say, uh, it's, Josh will do it. Josh yeah. will do it. Uh, so, but at that, at that gig was someone from the uni who the next, like two weeks later was bringing down Rod Pontock and Duff to, mm-hmm. uh, and they said, Hey, do you want to MC that? And so my second gig was doing like MC for Rod Quantock. And I, oh yeah, just do like 20 minutes and then bring Duff on and then do five. And then, and I'm like, okay, cool. So my second gig, I'm doing like 25 minutes, which is ridiculous. Like it's, I shouldn't have been doing it. But afterwards, Rob was like, hey, you, if you're serious about comedy, you should move to Melbourne. That's where it's all happening, which I thought meant that Rod will help me out. And mm. he's, he's always <laughs> been nice, but he hasn't helped me out. <laughs> He did help you out. That was yeah. how he helped you yeah, out. Exactly. He told yeah. you, you have to move to Melbourne and then you have to work the rest of it out yourself. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think there's something amazing about that story. I mean, obviously it's a quite a, you know, a tragic story at the time. Yeah. It would have been a horrible thing to go through at the time. But it, it initially occurs to me that you started, you know, sort of you know, doing this performance by taking something that had been very sad and then turning it into something very funny, which is... Yeah. Sometimes a gift that it takes a while for comedians to learn, which yep. is often the worst things that happen to you end up being the best things comedically. And then in a way, your brain will change. In fact, yep. it can go too far the other way where often, you know, there'll be something bad happening and you're not engaging in it in the way that you should be, which yep. is this is a bad thing. You're engaging in it going, okay, where's the material going to be when I retell this later? Yeah, you really need take that time to process it. Otherwise it's not going to be one. It's not going to be the best show it can be. And two, it's going to be very, it's just going to be superficial. Like it's, and then I I do find sometimes, you know, bad stuff happens and other comments go, Oh, but what a great thing for the show. I'm like, can we just, can we just, you know, be real for a second though? Not real, but like, you know, Actually, be a human. Show some empathy and yeah. go. Oh, that, I'm, really, I'm allowed. I'm, really to, I'm allowed to feel bad about bad <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. You tell some a friend something bad, and then you can see they're jealous because, like, oh, that's a closer for your show now. Oh, damn it! <laughs> I wish it's my parents everyone, divorced when I was 33. Like, yeah. <laughs> it was so when I got arrested on the plane to Walker oh. Walker. Like, classic example of that because I was literally traumatized by it because I felt like you know something really shocking that was beyond my control had happened to me. Yeah. And so for months. I'm literally like I cried at a TV ad of somebody being put in like handcuffs, like on an ad for like feminine hygiene products or something. It was yeah. like two women at the start of a race being handcuffed to each other to signify like, you know, you're dragging around your period or whatever. Yeah. And I start like crying and I'm like, oh, I've got a little PTSD from this incident. Meanwhile, everybody else is like, oh, it's going to be great material, isn't it? Oh. And I'm like, I'm literally right now grieving. Now, eventually, don't get me wrong. Tickets to Illegal on sale. I'm yeah. bringing the show back. It's good material now. But there was a process I needed to go through. I'm the, I'm, that's why I, I was amazed that Hannah could do Nanette every night for like two years. And just because that show was just so harrowing. And I, I hadn't seen it like until it came on Netflix. I didn't never saw it live. And Hannah and I are friends. And, I, you know, talking to a post and like, oh, yeah, how, how are you going with the show? And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. Like it's hard work. And 
then I see it and go, oh, fucking hell. Like, I've got to really apologize by just kind of being glib about, oh, yeah, the show, I've heard good things. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, she was, my understanding is at least, and I don't want to speak for her, but um, one day we've tried to do the podcast many times and she just keeps getting really successful yeah. international opportunities that mean that we keep having to cancel it, but at some stage it's going to happen. Oh, so the last time she had my podcast, it was it was a live one in a 40-seater and the, and the cast was Tom Gleeson, her, Kate McLennan and Broden from Arnie Donna. I'm like going... I charged ten bucks in a forty seater. That that could fill Sydney Meyer Music Bowl these days. That's true. If you can get that lineup together yeah. for a live, don't you know who I am? You could literally do it at the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my understanding was that when she was doing that, because there was no way of not re- reliving, you know, some of the trauma of the show every night. So it could be an incredibly difficult thing for her to do. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily a fun, even though this show, you know, is considered to be this worldwide, you know, hit. And there have been so many comedians since who I bet are thinking, oh, I would love my own Nanette. But one of the things that you've got to be willing to do is put yourself through that trauma, relive that trauma, to yeah. do it as well as she did it. You know, you need to actually give the audience the sense of the real trauma night after night. So how long, how do you know when something real from your life is ready to take on stage? Uh, I, I do talk about my life a lot. Most of my stuff I'm talking about though, so Talks, the show I did in 2019, was about uh, when I was 13 years old. So it was talking a lot about that. The story in that was about that. The one I'm doing got postponed and I'm going to do it hopefully later in this year or next year. Uh, Modern Contemporary was from 99 and so – no, 98. So I was – yeah. So I, I do like to take a lot of time. I did I did rush one year, which was – and look, so we'll probably get into this, but I had a TV show that I didn't have a TV show. And the day the TV show was announced publicly that it wasn't coming back, my wife gave birth to my second son. And so that was – horrible time and that dumb thing of just throwing myself into the work going I'll just talk about on stage and try and you know deal with it that way and I wish I didn't I wish I took longer because while I'm really proud of the show it's I could write a better show now about that experience and that you kind of I do kick myself a little bit going I, I didn't need to talk about it I thought I did I thought that's what people want me to talk about and I could, I'll give the people what they wanted. And I should have waited a bit longer and talked about it when it was, when I was fully formed with my, like, thinking about the whole situation. Well, firstly, what I would say is that I think you can always talk about something again. In fact, I find that particularly fascinating in a performer. If you can, you know, have a second go at, I'm going to talk about this thing again, but yeah. here are my different perspectives on what it is that happened, what I think about it, where my life is now compared to where my life is then. I just think that adds a complete new flavour to those sort of stories. But we're here anyway, so let's yep. you know dive in the, the deep end and, and talk about that because I think at least externally there's probably a curiosity around that. Like I'm less interested in it because yep. I work in the TV industry and I understand how these things work and I know that you are so much more than this that it is only such a small part of you know the Josh yeah. L story. But to the outside world, this is a, a big part of your oh, story. Yeah, so. to the, this will be this will be the first paragraph of my eulogy. Mm. Hosted picks and specs for a season. That'll be that'll be in there. So yeah. <laughs> so I, I understand it. So all right, for those catch in twenty fourteen they brought it back for a season. 
plan was to bring him back for longer, but we lasted one season. And the way it kind of ended was not great. So can we can we let, let's before we get to the ending, let's start at the start. Okay. So Spicks and Specs was a super popular Australian show. I yep. only say that mostly for our international listeners who might not be fully across it. Uh, very much like what's the show in the UK? Never mind the Buzzcocks. Yeah. It's a yeah a pop culture you know pop music or well, all sorts of music you know yeah. quiz. Comedy panel show. Yeah, that and has a, was, a much more broader appeal though in Australia than the one in the UK. I think Buzzcocks was a bit more bitey, but Australia was like, yeah. oh, it's ABC. It's got a broad audience. They knew who they were. A very was. family, yeah. like not just family friendly, and because sometimes that can be like no, but, men in a mean way, but more but was, a cross generational thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, even with the guests that they picked, the sort of music they talked about, it wasn't narrowly focused. It was more broadly focused. It was super successful, hosted by Adam Hills, who a lot of people will know, super successful international comedian. Um, Ellen Bro, Miff Warhurst, you know, they became family names in yep. Australia. And because of the nature of the show and the nature of those people, also incredibly loved people. Yep. Um, there's a TV show in Australia at the moment called MasterChef. And recently, after 10 years of them having the original judges, they got rid of the original judges and then they've brought in some new judges. The new judges have been embraced by people because, to be honest, people were kind of sick of the old judges yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons that, you know, the shine had gone off the old judges. When Spicks and Specs finished in Australia, no shine had gone off oh. the original cast of that show. They The episodes were still running like yep. on you know channels all the time, still getting really great ratings. They you did know, a big, people, the uh, show was beloved. Big live tour where they were like, you know, people would come out and see the show live, and it was like, yeah, people really, really loved it. Yeah. So, so how long has it been off air then? When you know you get an opportunity, they say we're going to reboot this because I think it's worth setting the context that yeah. it was it was always going to be an incredibly difficult thing. Yeah. To reboot. So I think it'd been three years. I think 2011 was when it was taken off and we started 2014. So, yeah, three years. Uh, yeah, that's it. Three years would have been okay, I reckon, if the show had actually been off air. Well, that's But the, in yeah. those three years, the show had never actually been off air. No, because on ABC2, which is ABC Comedy, they play it every night. And, people, and it's that thing when the kids' channel kind of flicks over to the adult content, that's kind of the bridging show. So it's still not like it's not rude that the kids have to. So you have a lot of new people coming in as well, going, "Oh, right, cool, we'll watch this because the kids have just finished watching whatever they've watched, and yeah, we can watch this as a family as well." Okay, so they they decide they're going to remake it, yep. and you decide that you think you can host it because I want to know what you were thinking at the time. Like, I I didn't one episode. I did the the, the final ever episode they filmed before the finale, and. Did very well on it, if I do say so myself. Uh, and well, good area for you. You have a really yeah. incredible, you know, musical knowledge. You know, you're very funny. Yeah. Like, I think your comedy works well in that, like, you're not putting away any of your weapons to go yeah. on a cross-generational show. Like, makes yeah. a lot of sense that you would do well in that show. And then uh, there was talk at the start of 2013, they were bringing it back. Maybe, yeah, at the end of 2012. Oh, we might bring it back. And... One of the producers called me and said, oh, would you like to come in and help out with the auditions? Which I meant, I thought meant, be on the panel. We'll see the people thing. And I went, yeah, cool. And then I heard nothing for like nine months. So I obviously got put on ice. And then heard again, would you like to come and help out with the auditions? And I said, yep, cool. So they sent me an email 
and we had the script attached and it was like, host Josh. I was like, oh, all right. I didn't realize it was going to be like proper. I'm auditioning. I thought I was just helping out. And so the first one, I go into it thinking there's absolutely no way this is going to happen, but how fun is this going to be? I get to play pretend here. It's great. And it went very well. And then I did another one about half hour later. They're like, all right, we'll change the people. You do another one. And so I did another one and that one went even better. And so then they're like, all right, thanks for coming in. Go home. They call me back again and I did another one and it was great. And I was having really lots of fun with it. And then the third one was when I started getting quite nervous. So they, I go away and then it came down to the two of us. And I was like, okay, I really, I really want this. But I started getting a bit nervous, but it went really, really well. And me and Ella and Adam just clicked from the get-go. And I didn't really know Adam that well. I knew him a little bit, but not that well. But we really, really clicked and we're still very good friends. And Ella, I'd never met, but it was like, oh, this is great. And Ella's so lovely and she gets on with everyone. So it was uh, waiting and then I got the call that I've, I've got the show and it's very exciting and I can't tell anyone about it. And also the week I find out I have the show, my wife and I discover that we're pregnant and that's very exciting as well. So we already have... Uh, one son, uh, and it's it. It had been a tough couple of years before that as well for us. Not for Beck and I in terms of like our relationship, but after Oliver, she had suffered quite badly with postnatal depression. My parents separated, and then divorced at the start of 2014. So they separated 2013, and just dealing with that. So when your parents are, you know, adults and you're an adult, and it's a different kind of divorce than. Like it gets, it got a bit messy. Anyway, dealing with all that, get this. This is great news. Great. And then uh, can't tell anyone for a, a few weeks. And then it gets leaked that it's me. And I still, so I didn't get to have that great. I get to sit down my family and the people I care about and go, hey, I've got some exciting news. So that was kind of stolen from me, which is a bit shitty because like, yeah, yeah anyway. Uh, we go through all the rehearsals. It's going great and everyone's really, really positive about it. And it goes from, they're only going to do 10 episodes. Then they come and watch a, we did a bunch of like kind of practice ones. They bump it up to 20 episodes and then they watch the pilot. And like, Let's give it a full season. We'll go 26. And so then the ABC changed heads of entertainment and then it all starts kind of, people aren't as confident about it with that. And so... I'm so new to it. I'm just taking in everyone's kind of advice and it's – I'm trying to just appease everyone because I'm like, these people work in television. They know what they're doing. And if I had my time again, I wish I could just be a bit more confident in my own ability and go, I think this is what's best for me and probably then will be best for the show. Anyway, so That's an incredibly difficult thing to do though. Yeah. I, th- that's – and that is, and because you, you're not necessarily always right in that situation. No. Like, you know, I've, I've spoken many times on this show before about the fact that, uh, you know, I think just Andrew Denton, who is like, you know, in, I have an incredible amount of gratitude towards because, you know, he's one of the co-creators of Gruen. Like the show would not exist without him. It would not exist in the way that it does exist. And I wouldn't really be doing the sort of comedy I want to do without like having grown up watching him, you know, make the sort of comedy that he made. Like, you know, I couldn't be a bigger fan of his, but we had like a lot of hard times early on making Gruen because of the very thing that you're talking about, which was that he had in his mind, the way that he did things. And 
absolutely there's a big part of you that's like well how could you ever argue with how andrew denton wants to do things andrew yeah. denton's like a genius and yet there was another part of me that was like yeah but that's how it would work for him to do it like yep. if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna have to do it this other way because this is how it works for me and that was the main source of our conflict and at that point i'd already done six years at the glass house like you know i was you know a lot more established in a position where i was able to say a few more times no i don't think this is right but you're suddenly you know this is your oh. big break this is yeah. this is the three, moment you don't want to fuck it up three months before i'm working at the at, a, at the state library it's that thing of like and for everyone and it was that thing people like i remember the 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 day it aired, I went on ABC Breakfast and Virginia Trioli was like, why would you ever want to do this job? And I was like, <laughs> that's that's the first question I get asked. And I, that day I've got a whole day. They put me in the TARDIS for the entire day. Mm-hmm. And I was really positive about the show. And then I, that's the first – and I'm like, oh, no. Like I think this is not, not going to go as well as I thought. I thought people might give me a bit more of a – not a break, but, you know, be a bit more open. Anyway. And she asked me that and I'm like, oh, oh, because I have been working for like 12, 13 years in comedy and I want to do that. Anyway, so it was very off-putting. But um, yeah, so the first – so what happened was they were like, oh, we want it a little bit younger. We want to skew younger and because the ABC audience was getting older. They're like, Let's do it. And so I think that's why I got chosen. Even though I was only one year younger than Adam was when he started, I just – Maybe I, I gave off a younger energy. I don't know. Or people forgot that he was 32 when he started. Uh, so I, yeah, we do. We have uh, Jay Watson from Tame Impala on the first show. And the first show goes out and all, all it's 50-50 positive, negative. Before it airs, all the reviews are positive. And then it airs and Twitter, and this was 2014, when people really kind of believed what was written on Twitter, like took it as, oh, these people are like their opinion is really valid, and not that I'm saying people's opinions aren't valid, but it's that thing of like we yeah, kind of go, like, oh yeah. If there's you, a lot of crazy you, people. If who you are judge angry things by people being mean about it on Twitter these days, everything yeah. would be terrible because yeah. people are mean about everything on Twitter. Yeah, and so all the negativity was based at me and my voice and how I spoke too fast, and I was pushing the entire thing. Hey, can we just let them know that? I had eight years of speech therapy. That's like, I reckon we could spin this into our favour. And I remember... Particularly at the ABC, it's an incredible story of genuine diversity. Like, like at last, someone who isn't bloody a straight white guy, you've actually got something you can bring to the table. Like, I mean, I know that we're kind of joking about it, but there is a truth behind it. Like, a serious truth behind it is that this is somebody who has worked very hard to be able to go from a place where, you know, they literally could not speak. I've had to have all these lessons over yeah. these years to be able to speak. This is an amazing story. If he occasionally speaks too quickly, then, yep. like, you know what? Yeah. It's still a great fucking story. But here's the, the annoying thing was, like, as a comic, my thing is, okay, so I bring up my flaws before the audience too. And I'll mm. make jokes about them. And that's just, you know, so many comic comedians do that. And so I would do that in the room. And then... I had a producer say, oh, it's a shame that we can't air that because it always gets a big laugh in the room when you say stuff like that. I'm like, why can't we air this? Right. Like, you know, Jonathan Ross has a speech impediment. He hosted one of the biggest shows in the UK. Like, Alan Carr has his own speech issues. Like, if you own it, 
it takes the power away from the people online. They're going to have to try and think of something new to have a go at me about. And look, there's plenty there. But like it was constantly he talks too fast. And I don't think it was I was talking too quick. I think it was, one, a little bit of a Tasmanian accent, a little bit lazy in, you know, the how I end some of my words. And I think the clarity because the person who was doing the auto cue uh, says, well, you're not as quick as Sean McAuliffe. Like, he's a lot quicker than you are. And so it was like, all right, I don't, I, I, it was always that thing of like, I'm, I'm really struggling here. And that was beating at my confidence a lot. And so therefore, they wanted high energy. And for me, high energy was like, all right, and that gets me faster. So I'd be going, all right, I've got to start a bit down so I don't go too fast because that's what I'm hearing from everywhere else. And so it was really, yeah, it was a horrible time in my head in that, you know, six months we were doing that. Was there anybody that you could talk to during that time? Like anyone that you really trusted that you could go to and say, you know, what is the truth here? Or were you just, you know, deciding that you were going to be, you know, like somebody polling before the election and take everybody's opinion into account and try to, you know, blend them all together? I started off taking everyone's opinion and then by the end of it, there was just one or two there who I was like, okay, I think this is the person to listen to. And so, yeah, it's, but yeah, I also, I was thinking about this because, you know, when the philosophy going, what are my philosophy kind of thing? And like with comedy, I think you need to have a good team behind you. At first I thought it was just like, you need to have talent, hard work, luck is very important. Before, I think that they were the three. And now I think, no, you need a team, a good team behind you. Because they have a good team behind you. You kind of, you do have to just try and figure out on your own, on the fly. And that's not what you should be concentrating on. You should be concentrating on on the work, really. So, yeah, it was it was tough. Okay, so let's, you know, so was there highlights of it? Let's talk about the good oh, times first before we get to the... Absolutely. You know, I think some, that's the thing. So people sometimes will go to introduce me at something and go, oh, can I, can I bring up Spicks and Specs? I'm like, yeah, I'm really proud of it. But you don't have to say it like it's a death in the family. Like it's something. And so uh, meeting Aid Edmondson, uh, DJ Shadow was on the show. And it was great to go, okay, let's have someone who probably wouldn't be on the old series of Spicks and Specs, someone a bit, you know, from a bit out of left field. Uh, there was an episode with uh, Ben Mingay, which I think is very, very funny. I think it's just one of the funniest uh, of the season. That was a really highlight. And going into that show... The comics were Jen Fricker, who's great, but she was her first time, and Denise Drysdale, who I was like, I'm not sure if she's going to be one of those comics who come in with a zinger. And so, but it was just everything was great about that episode. So I'm really happy with that episode. And I think the main thing is the friendship with Adam was amazing. So we still talk very regularly and it's lots of fun. And I think that's when I look back at it, I go, I'm really proud of doing it and proud of, you know, we had a lot against us. And I think we, I delivered what they asked me to do in the contract, give them 26 episodes of a TV show, and I did it as best as I could. Okay, so then you, it, 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 it isn't going, so what happens? Like what's the, because I, I, I have vague memories of this. I remember, did it get bumped to a different time or did they put some of the episodes yeah. away? What, what happened? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a bit mucky at the end and it was almost like, and no one was telling me anything. And it was always that thing of like, almost as if they, not didn't think I was worthy, but that thing of like, oh, it's TV and we'll let the grown-ups kind of deal with it. So they announced uh, one week that 
episode 20 will be our final week and then they'll hold on to six and then put them out. And so they said the next week will be the last one. And it was that week we were up against State of Origin, which is always hard. <sighs> and so it was that yes. thing of going, you can't turn uh, uh, like the opinions of the people with when you rate 370,000. It's like, all right, cool. We're dead in the water here. And no, that, no. so they announced that we were going to be off in episode 20, but then that was like three weeks before. And so we had that one against the first State of Origin and our last one was going to be against the last State of Origin game. And so it was like, oh, yeah. For me, it felt very calculated. Like, we'll do this. The ratings will be low. No one can complain. It looks like it's the right thing to do. And then, uh, and then I did laugh because the, the week after they – uh, put on a documentary about David Beckham. I was like, well, if you don't like my voice, you're in for a treat. People. <laughs> uh, and then they held off until the end of the year and I didn't even know they were going on. Just I had someone hit me up saying, hey, you're on TV right now. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, And they just played Friday nights, 8 o'clock. Well, yeah, and that was it. And kind of just petered out and done. And so, yeah, and so the end of it was very tough. So I knew for a while, like before it was announced publicly, like t- probably two weeks before. And, and how are you at that time? Because uh, firstly, like you've gone from getting this incredible opportunity. Your life's changed. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting to do what it is that you love to do. And particularly for somebody like you, it's not like you've just landed a TV presenting job. You've landed yeah. a job that going into it, you might go, wow, imagine if I could do this for two years, three years, yeah. five years. You know, imagine if you, like this could be the perfect job for me. A person who loves meeting all these musicians, yeah. loves like, you know, um, you know, like from what you've done since then with your podcast, clearly it's a role that suits you, that you enjoy doing. You enjoy, you know, facilitating other people, being good in a forum, yeah. you know, giving them the opportunity to shine. Like you're in, in so many ways, you know, perfectly made for this job. So I imagine that at least at some stage during it, there was this, you know, your, your brain goes with this dream of what the possibilities of it could be. And then suddenly it's the opposite of that. Well, yeah. Well, at the time it was the possibilities. Of, oh, my, my kids can have a really good life. That, that was the main thing going, right. I'm, it's, it's constant work. If we can get this, it's great. Like, and set them up to have, you know, Every opportunity they want, they can pretty much get if I have this. And because, yeah, anyway. So I um, so I should also point out, so around this time as well, this is another little thing. My my son is, my eldest son is uh, developing little tics and he gets diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. This is like about uh, a month before it all gets pulled. And so dealing with that as well. And so th- thinking all right, well, at least we can, if he needs to, at the time I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know if it was like medication or therapy and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm going, we, we, we can pay for whatever we need. It's, it's going to be fine. And so it gets uh, pulled and my first thought is that. But then I think, well, I mean, the people I work with have all been very positive about me and they're saying, it's not you. Don't don't worry, don't like don't read what the... Twitter people are saying it's it's you, you're doing great and you you work hard and I I used to think you know if I go in and I do the work which I was I was always one of the first ones in the office and the last one to leave and I was writing on the show and getting like good percentage of my jokes up and then 
like reading all the reading material. Like we had Kate Sobrano. I read Kate Sobrano's book for the show. I probably didn't need to. I probably could have got someone to say, hey, hey, can you just give me the gist of like just the footnotes? But I was like, no, I really want to know about these people in case something comes up and then we can talk about it and that's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it doesn't sound like much, but it's, you know, you don't have that many hosts reading the entire book of something. If you they, did more yeah. than you needed to do. That's what I was thinking. And I thought, oh, well, this will this will bear well for future future opportunities. And then nothing really came off the back of it. If anything, my live shows, the numbers kind of dropped. I was going in a really good kind of trajectory and then it kind of dropped after that. And it was almost like a shame thing for me. I was like, oh, is this, is this it? And then I was thinking, well, if I just do good work, that's all I can control. If I just do the work, write good shows, that's, that's what I can control. So that's what I'll, I'll throw myself into. And so I think every stand-up show I've written post that has been the best. At the time, I think this is the best work I've done, which is, I think, a, a good way to be. Otherwise, why, why would I keep going? So, yeah, and then, and then it gets pretty dark and heavy around six months afterward because it gets publicly announced the day that Henry is born, my uh, youngest son, and it's almost like they took... So I had the announcement taken off me by the Daily Telegraph for announcing it too soon. And I had the birth of my son almost taken away from me because I couldn't separate the headspace. I couldn't be present in the birth of my own son, which is something that I, I still, I'm not angry about it now, but it, I, I regret that. And I don't know if the, the ABC didn't know that my wife was so close to giving birth, but at the same time it's like, well, the people in the, the Spicks and Specs office were, they absolutely knew because Beck would come in and they'd be like, oh, how, how, how close, how close. And so a bit of miscommunication there that they couldn't, they didn't have to announce it. They could have said, oh, we're, we're seeing. Like there's lots of shows that just go away and they don't have the announcement of, yeah, it got, it got pulled. And so I, yeah, went down and it's that thing of, goes back to the headspace and which who I who am I going to be at this point and what brain that I've got to put on this face of my son's just been born how amazing is that like one of the top three days of my life like wedding first son second son this is amazing and I remember sneaking away so Bex just given birth she's got the she's got Henry on her I say I'll go get you some food and I just go and check my phone for messages and that kind of gross kind of like I should just be in this I should be in this and so I really struggle for about six months of going it's fine it's not fine it's, it's fine and some friends you can talk to about that but then it's hard, like people get over it and they move on with their own lives and you feel like you don't have any and I didn't want to burden Beck with it because I knew how hard it was with the with the birth of Oliver and her um you know postnatal depression I didn't want it I didn't want to have her have to burden my stuff when she's got her going through her own stuff and was there any I ask you know probably knowing what the answer is because unfortunately this is one of the worst things about the industry that we find ourselves in was there any help 
exit plan help from the ABC or the production company or any of these people who are responsible for getting you in this yeah. thing, like throwing you to the wolves, getting you in this thing, then ending it. Like, cause even if they, let's give them like, you know, the one little tiny little modicum of that. They might yeah. not have known that it was the day that your kid was being born, but let's, let's yeah assume that they didn't. They, they would have found yeah. out the next day, like, you know, that the kid had been born. You can still, it's not too late at that point to put in some support around of going, how are you handling things? How are you dealing with this feedback? How can we help you out of this in the same way as we yeah. helped you into it? Was any of that happening? No. I, look, they sent a little care package of stuff they grabbed from the ABC shop. So I got so a Giggle and Hoot okay. water bottle and a little plush toy, some flowers. Uh, one person was coming down from Sydney to Melbourne and said, let's meet up. And then almost it was like, so what do you got to pitch me? And I was like, oh, I, I didn't know it was a pitch meeting. I, I got like, ugh, like I'm dealing with some stuff. And then I heard nothing. So I did have a meeting with someone about 18 months later and I brought up how this really affected me and how it made me feel and they, their response was I'll get someone to apologise to you for that and I was like well you're right here right now you could do it but no yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. no I'll get someone so the to worst do the worst moment so they did that year in October I think it was they did something for Are You Okay Day they did a mental health week and that was the hardest one because it was like the same team who worked on Spix and Specs were working on this and I was like this is all about looking out for people and then they used a clip of me saying oh I'll be you know me just doing a little talking head like hey I'll be a good friend and I'll listen I'll make sure I listen and that was really hard and it was, wasn't like I wanted to be in it and I think some like you talk to comments and like oh were well, you jealous that you didn't get it? no I didn't want to be in it but I just didn't want them to go out and say these huge big like campaign about we're going to look after people when it's like, are you? Because I don't, I don't feel like you are. And I was talking, I talked to Jen Fricker about the same thing. We had a great uh, dinner just before COVID all happened. And I was saying, you know, if you work for a commercial network or commercial radio, you you know what you're getting into. But with the, it's like, if you got someone who's got a dog and you're like, oh, can I pat your dog? And they say, oh, it bites. Just, just letting you know. You're like, okay, if it bites you, well, I knew that was going to happen. But if they're like, oh, no, it's super friendly, yeah, and then it bites you, you're a bit more annoyed. And I think that's what I felt with the ABC. It was a, because it was that thing of we care, we're here. And look, all these people are probably in different parts now. So I'm not bag I don't want to bag out the ABC. And I have a lot of respect for that whole place and the people who work there. But it was pretty much out of sight, out of mind for me, I felt. Yeah, it's uh, so often in the world of, I mean, look, I think we saw it reflected by the community's attitude a little to what we do for a living when COVID yep. happened. There was a lot of sympathy for a whole bunch of industries that lost their job, but it just did not seem there was the same sort of sympathies for people who make their living in the arts somehow. Yeah. That it was kind of our fault that all our work had gone away. And, you know, like if you owned a pub or a restaurant or something, they people were like, oh, no, no, that's terrible. we've got to keep them going. We've got to get takeaway. We've got to make sure the pubs and restaurants can come yeah. back. And they were like, well, you idiots can get another job. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of into that, like a different generation go, oh, well, you'd do it for free anyway. 
you love getting mm. up there and do it. It's back to the whole teacher with the guitar. You 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 host it. It's it's fine. So I think yeah. But um, yeah. So dealing with the six, six months. Six months. Yeah. Yeah. You're dealing with you. you things are thing like the attention's gone away, but yep. the attention in your brain and your mind and in your world and also the added complexity of you know the fact that you've got two young young children children. you know like all this attention that needs to be there you're suddenly not in the same financial situation that you were to be able to you know help with these things you've got to look at how it is that you rebuild your life you feel i imagine embarrassed and ashamed and all these things that you shouldn't feel but is very natural to feel in those absolutely and it's the hard thing was as well like you know backstage at comedy gigs Everyone's having a good time, and then I felt like I'd walk in and people would go, "Ooh, ah, oh, got a ah, oh, Josh is here," and I, and that was kind of embarrassing. And there was some really great friends who came through and were always like easy to talk to and were like fine. And then you just feel the others who are like, "Hey, how are you doing?" And it's like, "Oh, I've got to get up and perform," and now I'm feeling mm-hmm. feeling shit. And so I also, as a performer, like the whole feeling shame and feeling like I had to address it on stage as well is not a healthy thing. Because, you know, most people don't care. They're like, oh, was that on? Or, oh, was that not on anymore? Like, they don't they don't know. Part of the reason it's not on anymore was they didn't watch it in the first place. You probably didn't need to address yeah. it. And so, and that kind of, you know, as a performer, I was kind of like getting in my head too much and writing every gig had to be this great gig. Otherwise, oh, no, I might not be able to do this anymore. And just way too much in my own head. And then, so I remember... One, I, I did a gig out in Dalesford and it wasn't a great gig. And I remember like this was about oh, probably a few weeks after the mental health week thing and just really being selfish and going, oh, I could just end it on the drive home. It wouldn't, it would just be like, oh, he's tired. He's had a new baby and he just fell asleep at the wheel or whatever it was. And I remember playing a game with myself because, you know, that, that drive back to Melbourne, a lot of trucks, especially that time of night. And I was like, just thinking if I, if I pass three, that's, that's it. That's the sign. I'll just turn into it. And I remember passing one and kind of getting excited going, all right, this is going to happen. And then the second one going, all right. Yep. 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 And then I saw the third, you see it from the distance and I pulled over to the left-hand side and was there for about, half hour just what very angry at myself super super angry just going i could have not just killed myself but and also ruined this truck driver's life i could have ruined my kid's life absolutely and my wife's and just family and all that kind of stuff and just the shame again because at the end of that it was that very thing of like it's a tv show it's kind of like the big scheme of things i'm healthy i'm a great family, great wife. It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it was really hard. And like from that, and I didn't talk to anyone about that for years. I went and saw uh, a counselor. I went and saw a psychologist and um, didn't bring it up in that. Even in the thing they say, oh, have you ever had any suicidal thoughts? I was like, nah, nah, which was just that thing of like, I should, of all the times to bring it up is then, but I, I went to two different ones. So the first one I went to, I didn't click with 
I remember him saying, oh, yeah, so, yeah, it's so strange in your industry. Sometimes you're on TV and then, poof, you're not. No, anyway, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's why I'm here. And he, he, he was older. And, just, and then the second one I went to, and look, I, only, I only saw her for, like, not that long, but she was great and very understanding and kind of just told me what you're suffering is post-traumatic stress. Like, you had this big thing and you couldn't deal with it because you felt like you had to be a dad and a partner and put on a public persona of I'm a nice, happy guy and you just need to deal with it. And so that was just reassuring to hear that, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't selfish and I wasn't crazy. I was just dealing with something that very few people had ever had to deal with. Yeah, it's, it's a really tough situation because what you were experiencing was something very real, but it just doesn't feel real to anybody else. And it's very hard almost for people well obviously either if they're a professional or if it's somebody who's been through that situation themselves it's hard for anybody else to truly empathize with particularly being the host of a show and look yeah. again i'm not by the way you know again i agree with what josh has said it's just a fucking tv show yeah. but as a person who's made my living being the host of tv shows and understand that the you know the various pressures that come with that and the fact that as the host you're the representative of the whole thing yeah that's the thing it's like being it's like when steve smith had to lose his captaincy of the australian cricket team even though somebody else did something it's because he was the captain and and the host is the captain yep. and so the responsibilities for the fate of the show eventually you know rest on your shoulders much more than they rested on adam's shoulders or ella's shoulders even though i'm sure they both felt pretty terrible about it going away yeah as well you know but there is something about being the host of this show that is a very it's a very unique position to be in in the in the first place but then there is just no structures in place for you know you just need that little pa- they just need a pamphlet that yeah. says you know so what happens? You know, here's, here's how you might feel. Here's some people that you can talk to, you know. Yeah, because when you, when you get the job, they do a big thing. Hey, this is what you cannot right. say on social media. This is what you can't do, be seen doing in public. They do a whole big thing. But when you add it, and that's the, I think a lot of people forget that I had a pretty decent life before I had the show. I was working in a job I really liked. My comedy was fine. I was like, really, and then change all that to do something that was a risk. And I knew the risk. But I was happy to take the risk. And then on the way out, you're like, all right, you're on your own now. Like, and it's that thing like, I, and I think people have written about this when it comes to people who go on reality TV shows. You can't just go back into the workforce straight away. I couldn't just go back to the library and ask for my old job back, which I did like three years later because I was like, that made me really happy. I was really happy when I was doing that. Why don't I go and think about something else than comedy and myself and do that? And so... Yeah, but it was. I remember the first day back there. Someone said, "Oh, I bet you don't want to be here again." I'm like, "No, I do. This is, this is a great place to work, and this is. I'm really lucky to be able to do this." But um, yeah, it was just that thing of people go, "Oh, well, he, you want to be on TV again?" I'm like, "Well, I, look, if someone bought, don't you know who I am? Absolutely, but not if it's like, hey, you're gonna be." doing whatever it is and just you're just going to be one of those faces and yeah no thanks okay so you you brought up philosophy but you know obviously yes i do ask people uh on this podcast if they have a life philosophy of any kind or many life philosophies often they you know change in relation to love and life and work and all these sort of things and we've touched on obviously a couple already but is there is there a guiding principle or something that we haven't spoken about already that you would like to talk about i think uh do the work is the big one I always have do the work, which is can be whatever. So if it's just your, your day job or 
mentally or physically. Like I think it's important. Uh, celebrate the wins is something I don't do and I try always have to remind myself. You know, take some time and reflect and actually celebrate and pat yourself on the back here because you've done a good thing. So well, I, I never celebrate the wins. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this one. And I think it's something that I genuinely like feel like I've missed out on in my life. Now that I look back on some things, I think, yeah. oh man, like you should have at least gone to yeah. dinner that night. You know, you should have at least gone to the, like I'm it's still, yeah, including this year, although this year it was um, for reasons, there was floods up near where I live and I wanted to get back early. But, you know, I don't know, even always go no. to the rap party. You know, like this idea of, you know, us celebrating something once yep. it's done has always been an uncomfortable idea. And I do look back and regret the fact that I haven't celebrated yeah. the wins. Where does it come from for you? I Talk think having, like you said, I had so much of that time on the TV show where it was a lot of work and it was always, all right, what's next? You do two episodes a week and it's like, all right, we've got another one. Okay, I can't, I'm not going to go out and hit the town and actually enjoy this. And I'm, I'm not even that big a drinker anyway, so it doesn't have to be. Drinking and celebrating could be whatever, but I, yeah. After that, when it was like, oh, I didn't, I could have had a, a lot more fun. I could have, you know, I I went to the Logies, but then had to work the next day riding at ten. So I was, I didn't like, and not that like the Logies is this amazing party I wanted to go to, but I had some friends there. I could have like been, oh, I'll only get to do this once. Why not? Like you know. Mm go and talk to Sandra Sully. Just go and talk to these people that you see on TV and go, oh, this is kind of interesting as an outsider perspective. Um, yeah, and so I think it is that thing of I'm proud of the work I do and it is that it's nice to reflect and go, yeah, this, is, this has been good, even if it's just, you know, for me, I remember, look, the only – time i've ever really celebrated anything i reckon the happiest i've been in my career was the 10 minutes after i got the phone call that i was going to be hosting the show and i had to drive to triple r where i was also working did a radio show on triple r and that 10 minute drive oh so happy so happy and then got out of the car and went oh now i've got to tell triple r i can't be working there anymore i've got to tell the library i've got to make sure that my parents don't like they're small towns, so they're going to sell their story to the local newspaper. I'm like, okay, gotta right. try and get all this stuff. And I'm like, all right, let's. And then, yeah, so I had ten minutes, ten minutes of actual bliss, <laughs> and then the rest was like, all right, let's do the work. So that's yeah. So celebrate the wins. And the last one, which is it's been said on the show, I think Judith Lucy said this one as well, which was just leave the place nicer than you found it. And that's when I've got. I tell that to my kids all the time. I tell that, and if you know better, do better. Those are the two things my kids are sick of me, sick of me saying to them, just because it's a very simple one. You can take it on face value, like leave it, like you know, tidy up, push your chair in, all that kind of stuff. But also, how you treat people when you know you don't want you to leave the room and everyone going, "Oh, that was a fucking chore." Like, oh god, thank god they're gone. So I, yeah, that's that's another big one. Leave it, leave it nice, and you found it. It's it strikes me that you are a facilitator of other people's enjoyment like you know really like this is why i actually think you're a fantastic host and it's in in many ways it's sad that the, it's the spicks and specs opportunity where we're talking about rather than the fact of like don't you know who i am on yeah. tv or something like that because it is something that you've created yourself and you're so good at as i mentioned earlier putting 
other people in positions where they can yeah. star. Has that always been part of your makeup? Have you always recognised that you're a good facilitator for bringing things together, creating things, you know, putting that little bit of magic together that means... Yeah. like, And even, I guess, to a certain extent, you being able to step aside or not feel the need to have to be the star of everything because you know the product will be better at the end for you not doing that? Yeah, I played a lot of sport as a kid. And so I was I played basketball where I was the point guard. The point guard role is to bring the ball up, call the plays, pass the ball to the best person to shoot. I had two very good players on my team. It was always like, great. So if I can dribble really well and play good defense, I'm doing my role and let these two win the game for us. Because at the end of the day, I wanted to win. That was the thing. And so I think that <laughs> kind of mentality is in my hosting as well I'm like i i want the energy in the room if i'm host emceeing a comedy night i want the energy good i want to see if there's anyone who's going to make a issue and try and diffuse it and put this attention somewhere else and so all the comics can come up and if they have a bad gig it's not on me it's not that the MC didn't set the room up and i also played a lot of football and i was a rover forward pocket and they're also you know you you try and do the right thing for your ruckman or you try and do your full forward and take the crumbs. And it was like those kind of roles, even though I didn't realise at the time, were setting me up for, oh, it's it's about the team, not the individual. That's why I'm always like, I'm never surprised when swimmers or tennis players have breakdowns when their careers end because it's like, yeah, because you've been singly focused for your entire career, always winning or always, you know, being a champion. And then... It goes away and you're like, oh, I don't know what my function or who I am anymore. Yeah. I'm going to get myself an ecstasy pill press and I'm going to start yeah. myself a small business. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. It's this importance of having a team behind you. So Yeah. And it doesn't have to be sport. I don't, like my no. kids aren't into sport at all, but it's like they play music. I'm like, cool, join a band, be in a band. You'll have you'll probably have a lot more fun. and Or band or choir or whatever it is like my my youngest son is really into drawing and so at school he's in a comics club and it's like great as long as it's a bunch of you like one does the story or you're all working together that's what you it's not just about i want to be the star i, I don't think that's a healthy way to try and raise a kid going yeah you're going to be it's all individual What's, talk to me about the podcast because I, I mean, you know that I, I love it. I'm a yep. you know regular listener, and I, I think it's a really fantastic idea. But for people, there might be some people right. listening to this today who aren't even across cool. the show and and would enjoy it. So, where did the idea start? Why did you decide that? Oh shit! Here's here I go. I'm gonna you know because I mean it again. It is yeah. It is in a similar vain to you know what the spicks and specs experience was yeah so. it's, a, it's a panel show so what it was was the thing with spicks and specs and all panel shows not just spicks and specs i don't want to be uh saying it's not a good show because it's a great show but it's that thing it was like it's it's reverse engineered so say for example we had claire bodich on i knew that she'd supported leonard cohen i wanted to hear about the leonard cohen stories so we got a question about leonard cohen in the thing and then i'm like oh, you toured with Leonard Cohen. What was he like? And I find that was like, that's, whereas mine, I get, oh, the other thing is when you're on one of those panel shows, the anxiety of a guest on those is like, am I going to get time to speak? Am I going to get good stuff? Am I going to say good stuff? Or I don't know what's going to come up. So oh, I'm a bit nervous anyway. 
Whereas with mine, I get all the questions. The quiz is about the four guest lives. And so I tell them beforehand, hey, have you got any stories that you uh, want to tell? Like imagine you're on Letterman and he wants to know two stories. What, what would those two stories be? And I, I write questions by, oh, who did this happen to? And I just say the bare bones of it and I let them come in. McGregor kind of, Luke McGregor kind of said, I alley-oop it and he get, it gets to dunk. And it's, that's, that's the good, good thing. It's like, yeah, if you feel comfortable, I give you all the information that's needed for the audience and then you can come in with all the tags and all the jokes and all that kind of stuff. And so it's four guests just telling their stories, people bouncing off each other's stories. One will tell a story and then someone that reminds them of a story that they didn't share with me, they get to tell that. And it's just comedians or not even comedians, sometimes there's musicians, sometimes it's just people who I'm friends with who I think are very funny. Uh, they get to tell their best stories and it's 25 questions long. The first round as well is all social media, which when I wrote this in 2014, it's great. People had fun on social media. <laughs> Then Trump gets elected. Everyone's very serious for six years. And so I, but I think it's still a good round because the pressure's off the guests to be funny. They get a laugh off a tweet or something before they've even said anything. So they're like, especially in the live shows, I'll read out a tweet, it gets a big laugh. And then they're like, oh yeah, I wrote that one. Yeah. I'm f-. And so the audience is like, oh, I trust that person. They haven't even said anything, but they're funny. So yeah, I think it's, that, that was the idea of it going panel shows are all kind of reverse engineered and just trying to make it be obvious with the reverse engineering going all right i'm just gonna i just want to get to the good stories i enjoy that first round because i have officially not said anything funny on social media for at least six years and so so you really have to go deep sometimes to find any of mine yeah although you've you've deleted a whole bunch of stuff i go back i use <laughs> i use advanced twitter search and now that was really great but now everyone's like more conscious of their their Twitter footprint. So they've deleted <laughs> either their entire feed or anything post like or pre 2020. So I'm like, all right, okay. But I, I can just get quotes. You, you're very famous. Well, I can just get quotes that you've said and put it in the first round. Uh, so you've been doing this show now for what you said you came up with it in 2014. So why did you yeah. think, let me think to talk to you about like why a panel show, like, you know, the world of podcasting was there. You could have done anything in that, were you thinking here's something that I want to pilot that eventually I would like to see on TV? Was that the thinking behind it? Uh, yeah. So it was that thing of just one, throwing myself into the work because I'm going, oh, this makes me makes me busy, makes me stop thinking about uh, stuff I shouldn't have been thinking about. Uh, I think I just wanted to showcase good comics. Really, that was the main thing. Going, there's lots of really good comics. Uh, talking and the thing is. Comedians love talking about themselves. Or look, even though they don't love it, they're very good at it. And so just trying to showcase their best stories and all those stories that probably, you know, couldn't quite work as stand-up, which everyone has. It's like, oh, I've got this story. I'm not sure if it's, yeah. And just trying to showcase that. And at the time, it was like, well, I can take control of doing a podcast. Like, I can't just go, all right, I walk in and have a TV show or have a radio show. But podcast and I liked podcasting as well. And it was that thing of like I knew with like the Dum Dum Club or I Love Green Guide Letters that the podcast listeners are they're, they're really involved because they've gone to the trouble of downloading it. You can't just accidentally come across a podcast and go, what, what's this shit? Which is unlike TV where it's like you can just be on the background and go, I hate this. And then they tweet that they hate it. It's like, yeah. <laughs> That you're in their house. Whereas podcasting, I find 
a lot more intimate in terms of one, most people are listening to it on their own, headphones, off to the world. They might be doing other stuff, but it's just it's very intimate to them. And that's kind of what I wanted initially. Going, all right. And because initially it wasn't going to be always just funny. And then it was like, oh, that probably suits my my style more. Yeah, okay. So like the idea of like comedians coming on telling these stories, that's part of it. But were you also thinking about um you know, this maybe this will be a TV show. Well, yeah, TV, but main thing was like just wanting to be paid to do this. Like that that's the big thing. So it just what well, didn't have to be TV. There's a uh YouTube channel I really like called Hot Ones where the guy just interviews people over eight hot wings and yep. he just and he gets and it's He's a really good interviewer. His name's Sean Evans, and like uh, it's interesting, and he's making money off it. And so my thing was like, all right, I like, I like being able to host. That's really fun, and I also like the writing of it as well. Like trying to find the stories or whatever it is to the best way to question it, and so the other people get the laughs. And that's that was the thing. So it wasn't necessarily I want this to be on TV. But by all means, if someone wants to offer it to me, yes, of course. But it, that wasn't the goal. It was just, yeah, let's just get paid. And so now, just have, having the last 10 months that we've had, it's been – I've been really lucky that the listeners have got on board and the Patreon's running well and got to do some – like I got – I did 10 live stream ones, which were great. And so, yeah, I was very lucky in terms of being a comedian in COVID that I still – had work that I was creating and also I think I still had that connection with other people which a lot of people didn't have I had an excuse to talk to people it was like great four, four different people a week I'm, I'm glad it went there because that's what I guess what my next question was going to be uh, be about was the role that it played during COVID because obviously as entertainers you know the main thing that we do went away in fact it went away very obviously for a lot of us because the melbourne comedy festival was about to happen you know that was one of the first major events in australia that got pulled you know at that stage we didn't know if it was just going to be a couple of months or whether it was going to be you know what we have later found out that it was going to be a whole lot longer than that turns out that those rescheduled shows you know from april that were going to be in october got rescheduled again and we've all got our fingers crossed that they'll happen again in april this year but who knows we we're not 100% sure. So what was that time like for you? And yes, you've touched on a little what role the yeah. podcast you know, played, well, but what was it all like? Well, I was going to I was gonna stop doing the podcast weekly and just go to monthly because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work every single week because uh, not only do I write it, I have to edit it and, put it, and then also book it, which is also a lot of work and trying to get four people's, like five people including my schedules in line so that we go, we do this. But it seemed to be like, really beneficial for me not just financially but also mentally to go all right I've got a purpose I've got different people I'm talking to like it's not just me and my my kids and my wife and we're doing the whole homeschooling all of us try to work and she's a music teacher so she was teaching classes in the in the lounge room and so we had to be quiet because we can't make any noise and so uh it was really great and it made me kind of fall back in love with the show a bit Again, because, you know, you over 200 episodes, you kind of go, all right, I've kind of got everyone's story in Melbourne and unless I'm travelling around and then Zoom happened and I'm like, oh, I can do this with Gareth in America. I could do it with like 
Tom Allen, who's in the UK, like all these, all these people who I know who I'm friends with and can go, oh, great. This is actually opening up the world and actually made it a lot more accessible for me to get the guests that I had always dreamed of getting. What uh, was it like not having audiences, you know, for a considerable period of time? How, how were you with that? Just in a general sense, I meant as a performer. I, at the start, going into comedy festival, I was, you know, financially bummed, but then... I actually enjoyed the first little lockdown a lot because it was like everyone had a break and I had not really given myself a break from stand-up or even thinking about stand-up for 16 years. And the fact that everyone had a break, you couldn't like, because sometimes you go on a holiday and you see this amazing gig and you're like, oh, fuck, I wish I was on that gig. Right. The fact that everyone was at home, it was like, oh, great, I can actually just relax and, you know, recharge. And then... You know, we had the idea of doing the live stream ones, which kind of went well. And uh, I got to pay comics, which is really good as well. I got to, you know, give some money out. And then the second lockdown, which was like the 122 days in Melbourne, was it was a lot harder. And it was that thing of going, oh, because you see like New Zealand opening up and Sydney and all those kind of – and that's when it was like, oh, I really – I'm really starting to miss this. And then, then the fear comes and like, am I – going to be able to do it again i've had so much time off like will i well and then i remember my first gig back after that second lockdown in front of eight people at comedy voltaire in north melbourne and me bombing and it felt so great i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> of all you couldn't set it up better to do your first gig eight people who one was in the front row from the very start with his arms crossed didn't want to be there and i'm like oh this is great because i don't really want you here either I just need to do this to make sure I can still do it. And I could. And then as soon as I got that first one underway and then the rest, I booked in a whole bunch and it was like, great. And I was like, oh, we're off and running. This is, this is really fun. But it's also hard, especially with the social distance audiences, because they, they kind of feel like they're on show a bit as well. Like there's a lot of pressure for them to be good because there's only like 20 and they're spread out. And it's, that's not great for comedy. You want everyone in, you want the audience to be anonymous, not be able to, like, you don't want to be, oh, are they going to make fun of my laugh? Are they going to pick on me? You just want them to be completely in the dark. We say our stuff. They laugh. Everyone's had a good time. Was there ever a moment during the lockdown that you considered never doing it again? Uh, not never doing it again, but I was resigned to the fact that if it never comes back, I'll be fine. It's that thing of like, all right, that was really fun. I'm... 39 years old and what a fun time I had for my 20s and 30s. And then we can try and do something else. And then, uh, yeah, but I'm glad it has come back in, in whatever way it is back. I mean, we had just came out of the five-day lockdown last weekend, which was triggering for a few people. But I was like, oh, if we can just do five days, we'll, we'll be fine. And so it seems to be back, uh, hopefully, to whatever this new normal is. And coming up to Comedy Festival, it's... It's going to be interesting. I'm not. I'm doing a show, but I'm not doing a full run. I didn't want to commit fully just because I didn't want to have it cancelled twice. Because I've got a show. I'm sitting on a show. Yeah. It's really interesting to see what people have put on sale. So I'm just doing. I'm doing two weeks of Mobile Legal Show, which I've already done at the Melbourne Comedy Festival because partly because I wanted to do that show again anyway. That's what had I had planned to do as part of my mix in 2020. Yeah. yeah. I've got. I, as we were talking about earlier, I did that show as the next show after that all happened. And I think 
I have a different perspective on it. Just like some of the jokes are better. Some of my clarity around like, you know, the way that I tell the story is better now that I've had like a few years distance from the actual event to think about it and have some like broader perspective and I'm just not yeah. living it as much. So I wanted to do that. But part of that is also that idea of, well, if they cancel it on, you know, the morning of the show, if we have to go into another five-day lockdown, yeah. I'll just put it away and I'll bring it back again at some other stage. And I've noticed there's been a lot of, when you see people putting on shows, it's like, well, here's an old show or here's a show I was going to do anyway. And then you yeah. just see somebody who's gone, I've written a new show and I'm doing it every night for the month. And I'm like, wow, I want I to know well, what place in your life you're in. <laughs> I'm doing two weeks, a split bill, and we called the show Apparently. It's like... We're not sure if it's going to go like Ben Lomas and Josh Earl, apparently. Who knows? We're not sure. Like, yeah. So, which is a, a bit of a hard sell. I mean, it's almost like we don't really want to do it. We, we won't, will we be there if you buy a ticket? But we will be. But it's, um, yeah, it's, that's the other thing. Like, so Ben and I, we share an office space at Stupid Old Studios and we weren't going to do a show. And he kind of said, oh, do you want to do a split bill? I said, oh, I don't, I think I just want to observe and see how it is. And then you see everyone kind of, start putting their posters up and and you, that bit of FOMO comes in. Like, you know, it would be fun just to, you know, do something for two weeks. And so I'm doing it in a 40-seater with Ben at the Imperial Hotel. We split bill. I do 25 minutes. He does 25 minutes. We come out at the end, do 10 minutes of Q&A on parenting because we're both parents. And uh, we think it's going to be a fun way to do it, especially because we're like going – we've been so isolated that it's nice to share – this experience with someone, like even going back into comedy, it's very isolating. Like you, you can go to the, you know, Bob bar afterwards and everyone's talking about their own show. How was it tonight? Oh, it's pretty, and, but they don't know. They weren't there. You can't really share. Like you can, you can share the horror stories because people want to hear it, but you don't want to share the, oh, that was a really great one. Yeah, I had a good one. So doing it with Ben is going to be a fun thing to go, oh, cool. We can, if it's a great show, we can have fun. If it's a shit show, at least we've got someone back there to laugh about it with and go, oh, that was, that was awful. Well, that's what I've loved is it, it has actually brought, um, you know, some more creative and inventive shows as well. Like not yeah. everybody's doing this sort of big new show. They're like re rethinking something or, you know, like you said, doing a collaboration with somebody yeah. else, doing a lineup show, you know, just saying, hey, you know, we'll theme something. We'll get three or four people. We'll all do something. And there's a part of me that wonders if like every second year, you should be forced to do a fun show. Like you can yeah. do your like main show that you want to concentrate on every second year. And then yep. if you want to do the festival in the in-between years, you have to be doing like a fun show. Yeah, I totally agree. I also think the way the festival is going as well, now that people are doing like two weeks instead of the full month, that's great for the festival as well. Because you have more people go, oh, so you're doing the first two weeks. I'll, I'll be able to see you in the second two weeks. And it's, yeah, I I really think it shouldn't just be I have to do my hour show, has to be the very serious, this is what I'm focused on for six months before and the writing and leading up to all this. It's like, yeah, having fun with it is probably something that we all, we've all needed. Oh, I mean, I've probably had the most relaxed January and February that I've oh. ever had in my entire life because the, the, the first time in yep. like the last 25 years, I just have not been sitting around going, what the fuck, I need a show in like three weeks time. Enjoying the summer as a comedian is it's very rare. We get to. It's been great. <laughs> um, all right. I'm conscious of the fact that we've been talking for ages and uh, I still have some standard questions that I like to ask people on right. this show, Josh. So let's get to some of those. Uh, what do you think happens when we die? I think we're, that's it. I don't think there's any – I mean, 
I've done DMT, so I think the light is your the chemicals in your brain, and that's it. And um, yeah, we go back into the earth from whence we came, and we regenerate into something else in like trees or f- grass or whatever it is, and then we all cycle along again. Goes two ways with DMT, though, Josh. That's what I yeah. found is that, um, as somebody who's dabbled a little in that world myself, is that there are some people who, firstly, DMT has an inbuilt thing that makes you want to talk about DMT to other people. It's the best yep. sales pitch of all time. If I could have as many people see my shows and then need to go and, you know, tell every single person in their life about the fact that they went to one of my shows and how much it changed their life, it would be a very good business plan. But there is, and partly there are people who do it and then come back and go, okay, well, I've done this and, you know, all these things that we believe are just, you know, images in your brain that can be stimulated by certain, you know, drugs and stuff. And then there's yeah. a whole bunch of other people who are like, no, I saw my own death and spoke to some aliens and all this sort of stuff. Now I believe in everything. It's interesting that you, did you dabble in the other direction at all? Was there a moment of, I, you know, I, those sort of psychedelic experiences that made you think that, you know, that there is something bigger I, than just we die and go back into earth i listened to your podcast about it and my experience was so different to yours yours was a big plan thing mine was i'm at a party someone's got it and said do you want to do this all right cool not knowing anything about it the guy just said oh it's just the chemical you release when you die and just that's what and like okay all right cool so i did it and i had a bright light for 20 seconds it felt like a shine and then after that i was giddy for a bit but then I hear horror stories afterwards. People going, oh, yeah, I lived my entire life. It felt like I was in it for like 25 years and I met all these people and I had a, I had a job that I would, and then I'm like, oh, I was not ready for that if I was at this party. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would like to do it again, but I think I'd probably prefer to do ayahuasca. If I'm going to do like a hallucinogen, I would – probably that would be the one I'd go to. It you'd seems prefer, to be healthier. You'd prefer to have your experience go for six hours and vomit and shit yourself at the same time? That's really what yeah. you Yeah. <laughs> it could be fun. <laughs> yeah, the um, comic in me, the poo is funnier. The poo is funnier than having a talking to a talking cat and telling me all my life. I mean, you've got to know that you're having a pretty, you know, profound experience, if you're willing to lay in your own vomit and poo for six hours. So I guess there is that. You can sell it that way. Um, Did you ever believe anything other than that about death? I used to, and it was quite nice when my grandparents died when I was very young. It was that thing of, oh, they turn into a star. And then if you ever want to go and see them, you can look up in the night sky and they're shining over you. And that's a nice comforting thing to tell a child because it's not like my parents were not religious at all, like very ag- like agnostic, not even atheist, just like too busy to be thinking about that kind of stuff. We never went to church, not even like like midnight mass on Christmas or any of that kind of stuff. Didn't say a prayer, any of that. So yeah, n- nothing of that. And so yeah, that was the only thing. It was like yeah, there's they turn into a star and you can they look down on you. What do you tell your kids? Are they that at the age where they ask about these things? Yeah, they're a bit older now. They, they don't really, they're very much realists. They don't even, they really want to know, was Santa real? And they'll like, be honest. And so we're like, oh, okay, it's it's not, but it's fun to pretend, isn't it? And that was kind of like, yeah, we pretend and it's all fun. And so, but they asked and I was like, we don't believe, but people do believe. And look, I have nothing against religion. Some of it is, I think some of the messaging is really good, like, do on to others is a really good message and Islamic of like, you know, five prayer breaks a day. I think that's a good thing to take some time out 
think about something other than yourself, something bigger. I think that's probably really healthy to do and better than sitting at a desk stressing about your job for nine hours, ten hours. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, with religion, I think there's some really great parts of it. I don't believe for the men in the sky who are looking down and, and tallying the scores and at the end you go either up or down. I don't think that's that's probably healthy to live way to live your life. But if it makes you feel happier and it gets you through, as long as you're not enforcing it on others, I, I find it yeah. Do you feel do you feel like you live a life with purpose? Like is there a purpose to your life? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I really try and make sure that people are happy to see me. I don't want to be a dread on people like, oh, fuck, here we go. Uh, <laughs> and I think the the work I'm doing, I know people can talk about comedy like it's the most important thing and they some people are saying, oh, we're, we're essential workers. We're not. They're way, my brother's a doctor, mm. way more essential. And I think though, but the work I'm doing keeps me creative and it, people come out and they enjoy what I do and I think that that's great and I as long as I don't take it too seriously I think it yeah I think it's it's good uh okay so if you could think of one bit of great advice that you've got in your life what it, what comes to mind I th- I I think the big thing is I said it before when I said it to my kids if you if you know better do better. I think that's a great way to live your life because, you know, I think we sometimes forget that everyone's still learning. And if you don't know any better, well, we can't – you can be punished, but you can't, you've got to have some empathy for people who just don't know any better. And I think growing up where I did, small industrial town, you, I live with a lot of people who have some beliefs that I don't agree with, but it's because they haven't been open to – other experiences, they haven't met other people who may look different or are attracted to different people than they're attracted to. And I think sometimes that thing of they're just scared. It's it's new and they just need a bit of, you know, bit of tiptoeing, not tiptoeing around it, but just, you know, soft gloves and just go, you know, it's going to be okay. Just have to experience it. Is there an like, example of something in your own life where you didn't know better? Yeah, I, th- I remember when we went, when I was in year 10, our whole class went to the Gold Coast for a school trip. And I remember our teacher, this is the person who was in charge of you know, duty of care for us because we, we got the bus from, we got the, the boat from Devonport to Melbourne, then a bus to uh, Queensland. It was so horrible. And he said, right, oh just God. so everyone's aware, just so everyone's aware, there are a lot of Asian people in China. <laughs> So, so just be a, a lot of Asian people in Queensland. So just be aware. And it was like, even at the, I was like, what, what is he talking about? I don't be aware of what, what's he thinks going to happen? Because I was thinking, oh, I, I kind of gave him the benefit of that going, does he think we're going to be horrible? But then I think, no, he was just saying, be aware of them. Like he was bringing his own small town. Oh, this is new and I'm not comfortable with it. So I just just be on your toes. You don't you don't know what's going to happen. Which I yeah, even to this day I'm like this is this guy's crazy. He shouldn't have been in charge. It's a it's an interesting thing. As someone who's you know been in the education system, I always am you know fascinated by you know what your impressions are of yeah. You know, are, are we giving kids a good 
education is the system set up well to you know give people a thirst for learning new things i i think the, the main difference is i think we instead of having the result be the end thing where it's like oh you got to get the good marks it should be more about the experience and i, I was saying to my kids the other day like because my eldest one's learning his times table and i'm like i still remember eight times seven is 56 when i think times table, that's the one i think because when i did my test for it that was the only one i got wrong so as I think of like, of course, that's the one I'm going to remember the most. But we don't reward that. We reward, oh, you got one wrong. It's like, well, now I know it. And so there should be a like, do you know Which it was the whole yes, point. I, Which was the whole yes. point. Oh, it's, yeah. You didn't actually really need to know it then. It wasn't going to come up in no. some important way. They were just really preparing you for the rest of your life when you might need to know it. And you do. And, it, <laughs> and it's that thing. So they give you the, they, they mark your paper and then that's it. There's no... Thing of hey come in we'll talk about what you got wrong now now tell me what you got wrong all right now you know the whole thing great you're good to go it's like no you got 74 out of 100 all right move on to the next one but now that's the, that's the thing about education i find that it's it's a bit backwards i'm going all right 74 out of 100 does that mean anything if you completely forget everything after you finish the essay like no nah doesn't mean anything no in some ways the whole point of the test is to work out what stuff you don't know yet so that you can just yeah. teach them the stuff that they haven't quite got yet like you know yeah yeah it's yeah okay incredible so i mean that's a topic for another day like we'll have to do another one of these at some stage and have a big old natter about education so um yeah great i've got two uh final questions so first one magic wand um, magic wand and I can give you any skill in the world. You don't have to do your 10,000 oh. hours. You can just have any skill. Um, what would it be? Uh, I was going to say dunk a basketball, mm -hmm. uh, but that's kind of pointless. Uh, you know what? No, if I, if I, I think if I was in the top 10 basketball players in the world, yeah. that, that'd, be, that'd be what I'd do. Not the best, top 10. Don't want the pressure of being LeBron. But if I'm top 10, oh, what a life. I mean, it at, says at my so size, much about you, the idea that you're like, at, yeah, top 10 I'd be happy with, but I just don't want to like be right at the point in. Uh, at my size as well, 5'7", yeah. and you're one of the, oh, that's a story. That's a story. I mean, would you be happy with like Spud Webb style? Like like you said, if you could dunk, if you just like yeah. really people did, you were a fine basketballer, but come All-Star Weekend, oh. you came out and dominated the dunk competition. Muggsy Bogues, 5'3". <laughs> In Space Jam, what a legacy. <laughs> uh, final question, I have a time machine. Thank you very much for doing this, by the way, Josh. People should listen to Josh's uh, podcast. They should go and see the live shows during the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Go and see uh, your split bill with Ben Lomas, who is a very uh, funny comedian, so that'll be a great night as well during the Comedy Festival. Uh, do you have a website? Is it like, uh, do you have like a joshl.com yeah. or something? Yep, joshell.com.au. All the details are there. Okay, so go there and find all the links and I'll make sure I do a proper plug up the top as well. But I have a time machine. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, it is a round trip that I offer you on the time machine. You have to bring the okay. time machine back. You can go forward or backwards in time. You can go to anywhere in time. I do not care about, you know, affecting the space-time continuum or like any of those sort of things. You can go back and change something about your life if you want to. You can go back and... Give yourself some advice. You can observe something. You can go forward. You have a question? No, no, you just answered it. Okay. All right. I'm going to go forward 50 years just to see how my kids are, to make sure that they're, they're happy, they've got 
friends around them who care for them and they're doing something that they like doing. That's if I, if my kids get those three things, if they've got like, you know, someone that they are in love with and who loves them, they've got some good friends and they're doing something they love doing. That's tick. They've won. I, I, I've, I've achieved what I needed to achieve as a parent. So I'll go forward 50 years. Hopefully they're doing what they want to do. And uh, if I asked you that same question, do you tick those three boxes? Do you think? I definitely do. Yeah, I, I that's the one thing I keep reminding myself. Like, going, if I told thirteen-year-old me this is what you're going to be doing at thirty-nine, would you take it? Absolutely. Be yeah, straight away. I'd go. Yep, yeah, cool. One, I'm living in Melbourne. Brilliant. That's <laughs> that's the best thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Josh, this has been a real pleasure, mate. I uh, appreciate you doing it. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. 